Well, if you're visiting this Sunday, welcome. You're new to the church, or you've just been out of town the month of December, or if you've been here and been so busy that you didn't realize we were preaching on the church mission statement. That's what we did in December. We looked at our church mission statement, which is that COBC is all about Jesus. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. The A-L-L represents the all statement. And we talked about how the hinge point of the A-L-L is really that middle letter, uh, letter, the learning from Jesus. Because you can't adore Jesus unless you know who He is. And He's revealed Himself to us through His Word. And you can't love like Him unless you know what love is and what it means to love like Him. You can't adore God until your heart's been changed. Because the Bible reveals to us, Jesus has revealed to us through His Word, that the natural state of our hearts is towards self-adoration towards self-love. And when we put our faith in Jesus, and really what's at the crux of putting your faith in Jesus is humbling yourself before His divinity, before His perfection, before His perfect wisdom, and saying, you know better than I do. I am wrong, you are right. Forgive me, Christ. Show me the way. Lead me. Give me a new heart. Make me a new person. And the Bible indeed says that those who are in Christ are new creatures. Old things are passing away. New things are coming. The hallmark of the Christian is a life that is bent towards devotion and learning from Jesus. Devotion towards Jesus, learning from Jesus. For the purpose of being transformed into the image of Jesus. God sent His Son to live as a man. Yes, He was perfectly divine, but He was also perfectly human, 100% human. Pastor Andy did a wonderful job showing us the Incarnation, telling us about the Incarnation on Christmas Eve. I hope you were there for that, that service. Here is our example in the flesh of what it means to follow God to trust God, to perfectly obey His commands. Even at that time when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. People will often ask me about their faith, if, if um, they're worried that their faith is inauthentic. I always say, if you're worried your faith is inauthentic, that's a, probably a pretty good sign that you are a Christian. Unbelievers don't worry about the authenticity of their, their faith. So that's a good sign. Other people will ask me, well, what about other people? Do you really think that person's a Christian? And I say, it's not my job to determine whether or not they're Christ- true believers. My job is to point them to Christ and point them to the Scriptures and have them test themselves from the tests that the Scriptures provide. And one of the things I like to see in my own life that strengthens my faith, and one of the things I like to see in the lives of others that tells me, now here's a person on the right track, is their humility, first of all, 
And secondly, that humility ought to flush itself out, striving to know what it means to be like Christ, what it means to live like Christ, what it means to replace the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God. There's this understanding when you come to Christ that we have accumulated through our own sinful desires, wrong thinking, wrong ways of living, wrong ways of evaluating the world we live in, wrong ways of interpreting the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And the process of sanctification, after we're justified in Christ, after we put our faith in Christ and He declares us righteous because Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us by our faith, then this process of sanctification happens where we grow in spiritual maturity from baby Christians to mature Christians. This process of putting off the old man, putting on the new, this process of taking every thought captive for Christ. And there's going to be these tests, these trials, where we're tempted to say, I think I know what God's telling me here, but I don't want to listen. I, I suppose God is saying things will turn out better for me if I follow Him here, but I really think I'd be happier if I did this. I'm willing to listen to everything God has to say except in this one area of life. This is where the rubber meets the road in life. And the book of James is really the book where the theological rubber meets the road. It's where life happens. It's wisdom, godly wisdom for godly living. It is a great book to dive into at the beginning of the year when we're all thinking about New Year's resolutions. Better than New Year's resolutions is a life resolved to being taught by Christ. A life where we're sitting at the feet of the Master and saying, teach me how to think, teach me how to live. Grant me repentance that I turn from my carnal, fleshly, fleshly, worldly wisdom and replace it. Not just replace it, but embrace the wisdom that is from God. This is what it means to let your light so shine before men. When people see us as those who are humble and yet live these compelling lives. Not perfect lives, not we've got it all together. But when you think about our culture and what is upholding really America as this place people want to come, I would argue that it's the Christians. It's the Christians that have made this a place where people want to come. And then people come and they say, well, don't throw your Christianity at me. But this is why this is a wonderful place to be living. People come to our church seeking help. Often unbelievers, they come they hear this is a place where they can get help. They meet with their deacons. The deacons sit down with them. And the thought never seems to cross their mind, why is it that these people are able to help me? Why are they in a position to be able to help? Why are the doors of the church here open all week? When you think about our schools, we understand that secular humanism has now... Um, is now dominating our public schools, our public 
our institutions, our universities? Why do the schools even function if that's such a bankrupt system of thinking? I argue because it's the Christian teachers and parents who uphold those schools. Look around the globe and see where anti-Christian belief takes root. Societies crumble. Societies crumble. And so, when I came to faith, part of what drew me to God was I realized something was lacking in my life. There was nothing with which to base my life on. There was, there was no wisdom. There was no um, source of truth in my life. On the surface, Jennifer and I had the American dream. We were married. We had a mortgage, beautiful house. We were going to start a family. I had a, a good job. And I attained to all these things that I had taught, been taught my whole life were the prizes, the goals. And I remember thinking, now what? I got to maintain all this for the next... I mean, it was really intimidating. And I knew I should be happy, but didn't, didn't feel happy. What was missing was the most important thing. We're created to worship God and to learn from Him. And my, my life in Christ has been a pursuit of His wisdom. Teach me how to live, Lord. One of the most influential books, other than the Bible... Early in my Christian walk was by Francis Schaeffer, and it was called, How Then Should We Live? That's what I was looking for. Because we have all these voices in our culture coming at us, trying to convince us how we should live. And yet they all left me feeling like something was wrong, something was missing, something was empty. So as we embark on 2015... I want us to look at the book of James together, and the whole theme of this book is replacing or trading earthly wisdom for the wisdom that is from above. Well, who is this author, and why ought we list, uh, should we listen to him? Well, it's the inspired Word of God. The author is the Holy Spirit. The way the doctrine of inspiration works is that God moved in the lives of men to use their own humanity, their own experiences in such a way that we get a book that certainly has its own flavor. James writes differently than Paul and Peter and John. But we could trust that it's godly wisdom, that it is truth through and through, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and that it will perfectly uh, correspond and mesh with the other books of the Bible. James, in particular, is most likely the younger half-brother of Jesus. James and Jude, both brothers of Jesus. Half-brothers, we say, because Jesus' father is our heavenly father. Joseph was his adopted earthly father, So after Jesus, Joseph and Mary had children the natural way, not the supernatural way, and they had um, at least two more sons, James and Jude. We know from the Scriptures that James formerly scoffed at the idea of Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of God. We can read about that in John 7, 5, that 
Bible tells us his brothers at this time were not believing in him. Now you could imagine why. If you've got an older brother, right? Really? My older brother, God, the Messiah. I mean, everyone knew the Messiah was coming and the Messiah would be, would be a Jew and you could trace the Old Testament prophecy. So if you think about it, somebody, somebody had to be the Messiah. He had to come from a family. He was going to have siblings. Why not my family? But James, like all of us, in his fallenness and in his pride to think, really, my brother? Do you have older siblings? They're kind of bossy. They think they're better than you. They think they know more. Well, they better know more. They're older. They've been around longer. They've had more time to learn. They've had more time to accumulate wisdom. Let's not take the humanity out of Jesus. He was 100% human. He lived in a family. Yet he lived in that family without committing any sin, which probably made it all the harder for James to like his brother. Oh, the perfect one. These are all names we would use for Jesus to honor him. His brother would use them sarcastically. Oh, the perfect one. Who made you the chosen one? He had no idea what he was saying. We do know he converted. He became a leader of the early Christian church and was eventually martyred for his faith in Jesus. He was such a leader in the church that he was head of the Jerusalem council we read about in the book of Acts. So as I'm preparing this sermon series, I was thinking about James and saying, what a great picture for us. We're all like James in that in our pride, we don't want to grasp heavenly wisdom that is right in front of us, right here. We have the mind of Christ right here in this book. And because of our residual sin nature and our pride, we often are just like James. I don't, don't tell me. I, I know. I'm a person too. I can think. I can reason. I can figure things out. Imagine when James came to saving faith. What it took to, to break his heart and crush his heart. And he must have wept bitterly over his pride and over his sin. When did he convert? Was it after Jesus died and then rose again and then ascended? Think about it. He had all the wasted years. He had God incarnate in his own family and couldn't see past his own pride. All he saw was this perfect older brother. I'm using some sanctified imagination here. I had godly wisdom. I could have asked anything of my older brother and he would know the answer. He could unlock all the secrets and mysteries of life. I mean, when James says in James 4.8, draw near to God, imagine what's going through his mind. I could have drew near to God. He was right there. 
is right there. We read in one passage of the New Testament where Jesus is teaching, and He casts a demon out of someone, and the Pharisees say, you cast out demons by the name of Beelzebub. You know, you're, you're, you're demonic. Here's this guy rising to fame, and he's your older brother, and the leaders, the people you've been raised to acknowledge as authorities in your life, as the highest authorities in your life, are calling your brother demonic, embarrassing, leading people astray. And we read that in the middle of one of his parables, his family comes to fetch him. And you get the impression that it was, we've got to get him out of there. He's embarrassing the family name. You've got to drag him home. They want to kill him. And he says to the person who says, your mother and your brothers are outside for you, he looks at the believers around him, the, the disciples, those following him, and he says, these are my brothers and my mother. These are my brothers and my mother. So here's James, and he's telling us that there are two paths you can follow. You can follow the path of earthly wisdom, or you could seek that wisdom that is from above. You know when he came to faith, to saving faith, he was resolved, never again will I chase after earthly wisdom. And yet, I'm sure he discovered, as all of us have discovered, it's easier said than done. When the going gets tough, we tend to run home to mama, the saying goes. And in this case, mama is running home to our own wisdom, our own worldly wisdom, our own thoughts of what is right and what is wrong and what the best course of action would be. By the way, theologians believe that this was the first book in the New Testament written. First book written. And that it contains the most material directly from the teachings of Jesus than any other epistle. Not, not any of the Gospels. Of course, that's a record of Jesus' teaching. But James quotes Jesus directly more than any of the other epistles, especially from the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. So here's a guy who ought to know the teachings of Jesus. He was raised with Jesus. I wonder if Jesus was preachy even when he was young. We know that when he was 12, he was teaching in the temple, right? After the Passover, his family forgot him. It was the original Home Alone you know, <laughs> except, well, like the movie, he was getting by just fine on his own. In fact, the religious leaders were listening to him teach in the temple. Have you ever tried to teach a younger sibling anything? <laughs> so, James was saturated with this teaching, he just couldn't accept it until after his conversion. We get introduced to the theme of the letter right away. The hard thing about this letter, it's different from all the other New Testament epistles, in that it's hard to outline it. 
it kind of reads like the book of Proverbs. It's like there's some pithy sayings and, and, and some truth, and then he changes subjects. And you're wondering if the new subject, if you're supposed to connect it to the last, or if you're supposed to start all over with a new topic. And just when you're starting to like dwell on that new topic, and you're like, oh, wow, he's got something important to say here, he changes topics. And so some theologians have said he was writing in the genre of wisdom, that is, like the Proverbs are written. But it's not like Proverbs in that there's seems to be enough connection between the topics that you think there's some kind of logical flow here. And if you're really into logic and you're a linear thinker, you will spend hours, days, months in James trying to figure out the outline. And just when you think you've got one, it all kind of falls apart on you. But he is a human being. He was inspired by God. Human beings, when they write letters, they have intent behind it. The letter made sense in James' mind and certainly makes sense in the Holy Spirit's mind. A professor that I respect at the Master's College recently completed a commentary where he used a technique called discourse analysis where you look at a whole book or a whole letter as a whole, and you use some techniques for breaking it down, and you can, you can figure out what the outline is, you can figure out what the theme is by where the letter peaks. By the way, the name of that professor is Will Varner. Oh, I see a smile from, from Heather Donkles there. Great professor. I think he's been voted like Professor of the Year like a hundred times over there. So he's convinced me through reading uh, his commentary that the peak is found in James 3.13, but we, we get an introduction to the peak, to the climax of the letter right off the bat. So let's read together James 1 uh, verses 2 to 8. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is writing to the early church has been scattered due to persecution. Scattered during horrendous persecution. And so in the immediate context, these are the trials James is talking about. But he says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, trials of all kind. Is anyone in here today not experiencing a trial? No hands. This is life. This is what it means to be human in a fallen world. I highly recommend, if you have your Sunday nights free, that you sign up for Pastor Andy's class on Sunday nights. He's going through a Tim Keller book on suffering. 
know, how to endure through trials. And he was giving me a little foretaste of the book, and I don't want to, like, you know, spoiler alert, but Tim Keller's premise is that around the globe, when we look at all the different worldviews, most worldviews have a place in them for suffering and trials, a purpose. In Eastern religions, karma, if you endure trials and endure them well, what happens? It'll come back around and, and kind of bless you. And if you endure a lot of bad, eventually you'll get some good coming your way. And if you come back in another life, you should come back as something better if you endure trials well. Now, the Bible doesn't teach this at all, but at least they have a place in their theology for trials and suffering. The one worldview that does not have a place for suffering or trials is secular humanism, the one we find ourselves completely immersed in in American culture. There is no place for suffering and trials in our culture. Suffering and sadness is something to be avoided at all costs. If you're sad or you're struggling, you are sick in some way, you need medication, you need something to take your mind off of it, something to make you happy. It is certainly not a gift from God. It certainly doesn't have a purpose. And when James says, consider it all joy, that is just absurdity in our culture. And you probably are finding yourself in your, that residual fallenness, because really in our fallenness, we're all secular humanists. We all fancy to live life without God. When you hear James say, consider it all joy, you have to admit that your first response is, really? Joy? Consider it joy when I'm encountering various trials, when I'm suffering. Now, he doesn't say that this happy, warm glow is going to come over you when you're enduring trials. That's not what joy is. In fact, this verb consider is a command, and it's that type of word that tells us to reckon something, to reconcile. It's like an accounting term. Should I put it in the black column or the red column? Is, it a, is this income or is it an expense? And we would all say that, what, a trial is, what, income or expense? Expense, and he's saying, no, you just got a windfall. You got your Christmas bonus. Why? How could you say that, James? Because he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, testing of your faith. If our relationship with God is the most important thing to us in all the universe, would you agree as Christians that our relationship with God has got to be the most important thing? It's the most important thing to God because He came down and died so that we could have relationship with Him. He didn't come down to die so that we could all have nice houses and nice cars and yummy food. He came down and died so we could have a relationship with them. And so we would say, yes, Lord, we agree. I submit myself to this teaching. Yes, relationship with you has got to be the most important thing. Well, how do we have a relationship with God this side of heaven? How do we have a relationship with God this side of heaven? Through faith. Through faith. Faith is 
things hoped for that you can't see. In heaven, we won't need faith anymore, Paul says. Faith, hope, and love, right? But the greatest of these is love. You won't need faith and hope in heaven anymore. We'll be in His presence. We won't have to believe that we will see Him one day. We will be in His presence. And so our relationship is completely predicated on faith. Faith that God is, and that He is real, and that He has made everything, and that He loves us. By grace you have been saved through faith. So then faith, this faith is the most important tool in our toolbox. It is the one thing we can't do without. And yet it's like a muscle and it has to be worked out. How do you work out your faith muscle? You have to go through trials. The faith muscle gets flabby when life is good. (laughs) When life is easy, it takes no faith. And so he's saying, consider it joy that God has given you the opportunity to exercise your faith muscle. Now, who here likes exercise? couple hands, that's it. <laughs> couple hands. Most of us, uh, we, we want things to come easy. Disciplining ourselves is difficult. And so God, out of His love for us, puts us through various trials because it forces us to actively discipline ourselves. Faith produces endurance. You know, like... That coach that you hated, that made you run lap after lap after lap. When I was a youth, I played competitive soccer on a traveling team, and and we were a really good team, and we just couldn't quite make it up to that next level. And they went out and sought the the expert opinion of some men who'd come over from England, and they said, "You Americans are are soft." when it comes to soccer. Look at how you train your, your American football players, what you put them through. That's what you have to put your soccer players through. So they hired these guys to be our conditioning coaches. And they, I just hated these guys. <laughs> Until someone threw up at practice, they were not happy. Yeah. We would lay on our sides and they'd put a soccer ball in our gut and, and while doing crunches, they'd kick the soccer ball into our gut. And they, they would just yell at us like it was boot camp. And then we played in our first tournament, and we ran circles around our arch enemies, the Modesto Ajax. <laughs> they were so gassed and winded in the second half, and we could have played you know three more games easily. And you're like, oh, okay, I, I get it. It's the Mr. Miyagi thing, you know. It's... Well, yeah, wax on, wax on. This, what, this is what God is doing with our faith. He's putting us through various trials. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This word, perfect, better translation would be mature. Mature, he's moving us towards maturity, lacking in nothing. Having everything that we would need to handle the next trial. And he says, it, but the thing you're going to need most in order to endure 
is wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, and it's really kind of one of those rhetorical statements, we all lack wisdom. No one's supposed to say, oh, well, I, I'm, I don't need that verse. Go on to the next one. The, the, whole, the whole letter is about getting this wisdom that you will need in order to endure trials with the goal of increasing your faith. A closer walk with God. If you ask God for this kind of wisdom, the wisdom that leads to a closer walk with God, God will be happy to give generously. Better translation for the word generously here is without hesitation. It's not the amount this word is talking about. It's, oh, you want wisdom? I'm dishing it out. But you have to come, it says, without doubt. And the way the doubt looks is you're in the middle of the trial and you're walking to and fro. It says like the surf being tossed by the wind. You've got no rudder. Your boat's just kind of being tossed around. You know, and you go, you go to your Christian friend or you go to your pastor and, and they say, you, need, you know, you need wisdom from the Word of God. And you say, yeah, that's what I need is wisdom. But you know what I really need? More than wisdom. I need for the trial to just go away. That's, that's what that doubting looks like. Well, then you're not really asking for wisdom. You've already decided what you need. You're not going to God saying, God, I trust you to give me what I need for this trial. Or if you're more honest, it's like, I don't want to go to the Bible because I already know what God's going to say. He's going to say, be patient. I don't want to go talk to my friend because you know what? They're going to say, read Romans 8.28. I know God's working all things together for good. For those who love Him are called according to His purpose. I don't want to hear Romans 8.28 right now. I want answers. Those are the answers. Thank you. Those are the answers. Those are the good answers, the godly answers. That is the wisdom that is from above. And so you'll see people They'll just keep calling people till they find the one who tells them what they already wanted to hear. Or they'll just bypass that and say, God told me directly, I can go do this. When we get to James 3.13, then it's the peak of the letter, the climax, it's the halfway point in the letter. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? What a great question. It's not the kind of question that when the epistles read out loud in the church, he was expecting anyone to raise their hand. That would be proof that you're not wise in understanding. After we get through the first two chapters of James, you'll understand that this question is rhetorical. It should be read more like, who among you really is wise in understanding? In other words, who out there thinks they know better than God? Who out there doesn't need to seek God's wisdom? Who's got it all figured out? Who has all the answers out here? Who only needs to be the counselor and never the counselee? Which one? Who, let me know who this guru is so I can climb the mountain.
And so he gives this test and he says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let's saturate our minds with that thought leading up to next week. Who among you is wise and understanding? It is a question designed for us to humble our hearts before God and say, God, I need your wisdom. I don't, I don't know. Okay, it's not, it's not this false humility of, oh, well, you know, we don't, we don't really know. No, we know. We know. We have God's Word. And if our hearts are humble and w- willing to listen and learn from God, we can then turn and teach others. We can bring others to the Master and say, learn from God. It really is all about Jesus. When we say Jesus is the answer to all your problems, that's what's wrapped up in that statement. The wisdom from Jesus helps us, first of all, to see that the problems we think we have aren't the problems. There's, there's other problems that are more important than the ones that we have. And yet we still see Jesus in the Scriptures meeting people's physical needs, meeting them where they're at, but not leaving them there. Telling them that they need godly wisdom. What wisdom does for us is it gives us God's perspective. And that's what we need. God's perspective. Remember when he put Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam and Eve were completely dependent on God telling them how to interpret reality. What's good for you? What's not good for you? And they traded in God's perspective for their own perspective. And our walk with God and our sanctification is the process of reversing that whole process to scrape away a lifetime of heaping upon ourselves our own wisdom and letting God just get past it layer by layer by layer and replacing it with His own wisdom. This is the life that brings honor and glory to God. Not so that we can parade around Hatchby saying, look how wise we are, country oaks. Look how put together we are but that we would walk around and say, look how put together Jesus Christ is. And if you'll listen to Him, He'll teach you how to get there. I want us to be a church where people can come whose lives are falling apart and we can teach them that Jesus will teach you how to put your life back together. Not a place where we say, oh, I can help you put your life back together. Just do what I'm doing. But like Paul, we could say, imitate me as much as I am imitating Christ. And after a while, we can take off the training wheels and you just follow Christ without 
that in-between step. And then you turn around and teach somebody. You make disciples. That's the process. That's what we're to busy ourselves doing until he returns or he calls us home. Please be reading the book of James, uh, the, the first chapter. Just really saturate your mind with it. and We'll be ready to dive in next Sunday. Again, uh, stay afterwards for a little fellowship. Be sure to pick up your kids. And <laughs> closer to uh, 1230-ish, we'll have the uh, annual meeting. All right? Let me pray and dismiss you. Father, God, we need your wisdom. Give us hearts seeking your wisdom for the right reasons and hearts ready and willing to receive your wisdom, even if it makes us look like fools in our own wisdom. We welcome that, Lord. And we also ask that you'll teach us what to do with that wisdom. How to glorify your name in our dark world. Knowing that not only will you receive the glory, but it'll be the greatest good for us. Lord, we know there's many lives out there crumbling and falling apart because they're lacking godly wisdom. We thank you for the grace you've shined into our life. May we not be prideful about any advancement we've made in our walk with you, but give all glory to you. And that we'd understand that to whom much is given, much will be expected. That we would be ready and willing to minister to others who are new to the faith and whose lives are messy. But we'd be willing to enter into their mess with them and help them hitch their wagon to you. That you would lead them down the paths of righteousness and wisdom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.